I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women-of-color media panel. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR, Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, we bring you the first of a two-part special, Love with Accountability. Survivors of childhood sexual assault, sexual molestation and rape share their stories, their journeys, as part of a call to healing, change and loving accountably. But what does that mean? How does that change how we move through the world? The Spin explores this definition of love, what it means for childhood sexual assault, how it changes how we love, how it shapes relationships to ourselves, between mothers and daughters, fathers and their children, families, survivors and perpetrators. Love with accountability, redefining, reimagining, reframing love. All of that coming up. contributors for this first special are a mother and daughter, Aisha Shahida Simmons and her mother, Dr. Gwendolyn Zohara Simmons. Aisha Shahida Simmons is the visionary behind Love with Accountability. She's a black feminist, lesbian, incest and rape survivor, an award-winning documentary filmmaker, a published writer, international lecturer and activist. Aisha is a Just Beginnings collaborative fellow and a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Social Policy and Practice, where she is also affiliated with the Evelyn Jacobs Ortner Center on Family Violence. Aisha is the creator of the Ford Foundation-funded film No, the Rape Documentary, and the Love with Accountability Project. An associate editor of The Feminist Wire, Aisha has screened her work, guest lectured and facilitated workshops and dialogues to racially and ethnically diverse audiences across the United States and Canada, throughout Italy, in South Africa, France, England, Croatia, Hungary, the Netherlands, Mexico, Kenya, Malaysia, India, Switzerland, Germany and Cuba. Dr. Gwendolyn Sahara Simmons is Aisha's mother. Dr. Simmons is a senior lecturer of African-American and Islamic studies at the University of Florida in Gainesville, where she's taught for 17 years. Dr. Simmons worked with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, becoming active during the 1960s sit-in movement while a student. She served as the project director of SNCC's Laurel, Mississippi Freedom Summer Project for 18 months. Dr. Simmons was on the staff of the American Friends Service Committee, the AFSC, for 23 years, and that's a Quaker Peace, Justice, Human Rights and International Development organization. Dr. Simmons is featured in her daughter's award-winning film, No, the Rape Documentary, and the award-winning PBS documentary, This Far by Faith and Freedom Summer. Dr. Simmons has won numerous awards and has published numerous essays and articles and lectures extensively throughout the United States and Europe. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank, Thank you. you. It's so good to be here. Love with accountability. You are two black women, two fierce activists connected by blood, a mother and daughter. Love with Accountability is a multimedia project whose purpose is to centralize survivors of sexual assault in a healing narrative 
to prioritize child sexual abuse, healing and justice in national dialogues and work on racial justice and gender-based violence. It's a project that is part of the Novo Foundation's Just Beginnings Fellowship. It examines accountability as a powerful and necessary form of love needed to address child sexual abuse. And it also examines how the silence in families and communities around child sexual abuse plays a direct role in creating a culture of sexual violence in all other institutions, religious, academic, activist, political, and professional. Child sexual abuse is a global phenomenon. In London right now, the world of football is reeling with stories of boys raped by a coach for years as others held their silence and created a landscape of hurt and harm and horror. The coach that football represented family to those boys and the betrayal silence for decades now finds voice and headlines. Here in Ghana, in the Brongahafo region, in the first six months of 2015, 280 girls between the ages of 10 and 14 were pregnant. That means they were raped. What stories might they share if they were given voice? In the United States, according to the Crime Against Children Research Center, one in five girls and one in 20 boys is a victim of childhood sexual abuse. According to Rain, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network, every eight minutes in the United States, Child Protective Services finds or substantiates evidence of a child sexual abuse claim. And silence means those numbers are clearly underreported. But even those numbers only tell partial truths. It is our stories, the telling of them, the breaking of silences, the sharing that is a powerful tool towards healing, understanding and reversing these global numbers. Love with accountability. It started with a series of written pieces by survivors of childhood sexual assault. 29 contributors over a 10-day period published pieces in The Feminist Wire. Each contributor wrote about an aspect of their sexual assault and what loving accountably might look like for them. In this first part of our two-week Love with Accountability special, we begin with Aisha's journey and vision. Let your visions take you You are, you are in peace Traveling may feel lonely sometimes But all who wonder are not lost The journey is to look inside and find and find and find Aisha kicked off the series of written pieces with her own called Digging Up the Roots. And in it, she talks about her childhood sexual abuse. Aisha was sexually abused from the ages of 10 to 12 by her step-grandfather, a man she called Pop-Pop, who she dearly loved and who has now passed away. So Aisha, let me start with you. I've explained the, the, the what Love With Accountability is, but break down to me why you created this. Why was this so important to you? so much silence around sexual violence. And what I've learned is that child sexual abuse is for many victim survivors a precursor to violence in adulthood. And ending violence in our society, it really starts with ending child sexual abuse. And ending child sexual abuse starts in the family, however we define family, those people who we entrust our children to. The majority of us are taught from birth that regardless of any transgression we may experience at the hands of a family member, we must protect the family at all costs. And love is all too often used as a weapon against survivors of abuse 
And similarly, bystander guilt is a painful, powerful force that stands in the way of our collective ability to end violence in our families. So for me, I really wanted to look at how can we address this global pandemic? How do we hold people accountable? How can we begin to view accountability as a radical form of love? Because usually when we break silence around child sexual abuse or adult rape, it is viewed as a betrayal to the community, to the family. And what I'm pushing and challenging and encouraging all of us to think about is that accountability is a form of love. Because as long as we are silent, we are going to allow unspeakable crimes to continue to happen. Talk to me about the actual work of putting this together. 29 different contributors over a 10-day period, all breaking their silence on the page in many ways to an audience unfamiliar with their, their work. What was that journey like for you? This is a part of my fellowship with the Just Beginnings Collaborative. Part of my vision for Love with Accountability was to really, while this is a global pandemic, I really wanted to look at it within communities of African descent in the United States, but they are diasporic black people. And so I reached out to 29 individuals, one of whom is my mother, to ask them to weigh in on child sexual abuse, healing, compassionate justice, and accountability. So people responded through their own personal testimonials, through poetry, through audio, through video. A father and daughter did a, a video discussion about this whole process. And so I celebrate, salute, bow down to each one of them because they, like myself and my mother, are very public. We know their names. We know who they are, the work that they do in the world, and we know their stories. And while there's not unanimity about how we can address it, but there is absolute clarity that it must be addressed and it must be addressed with compassionate justice. And so I reached out in July and shared that I'm doing this online forum on the Feminist Wire and invited them to contribute. And the forum ran for 10 days in October, which in the United States is National Domestic Awareness Month. I wanted to do it during that month in particular, particularly before the elections here in the United States, and to share and create an online virtual dialogue around this issue. Let's go from what you did organizationally to your own personal essay, the introduction essay. I wonder if you could read that first excerpt from your essay. What I am examining in my personal life in 2016 is that there is probably no single event greater than my molestation and my parental forced, encouraged encouragement with the man, my step-grandfather, that I loved deeply for decades and also feared for years that has defined everything in my life. What happened to me as a 10 to 12-year-old child was egregious, and it became horrific because nothing was ever done. My grandfather is definitely guilty of sexually molesting me for a period of two years. However, he is not the only one who caused me severe harm. As my mother shared in her testimony, I told her about my molestation while it was happening. Initially, she didn't want to believe me, but ultimately, she eventually told my dad. They were bystanders who never did anything. I was left to navigate my way by myself as a child who became an adult. I'm looking at this picture 
of you and your mother and you were as a, as a child with these beautiful braids and it looks like cowrie shells in your braids. And so I wonder as you read that, that there's no single event that has shaped you in the way that this has and the legacy of it. What does that mean for you now? How has that defined how you've moved through the world? What is clear to me is that it has defined my life's work, which is breaking silences around all forms of sexual violence. That's been my life since my early 20s, and I'm 47. This is me saying this in 2016. When I started doing the work in 1992, I didn't understand that. I didn't even make the connection, but I'm very clear about that. And I've been able to make these because I've been engaged for over 20 years with a black feminist licensed clinical psychologist. So I've been doing therapy. I practice Vipassana meditation. So I've been deep into my meditative practice. And I've been an activist in the anti-violence movement. So all of this has enabled me to tackle what for many feels like just unbearable, faceable trauma. I feel most grateful that I'm able to look at that and then pay it forward and play a role in co-creating spaces where we can unearth this and talk about it. One of the things that's powerful to me is that I think we're in an age, particularly when I think about the kind of Oprah age, where sometimes healing around child sexual abuse is treated as if it's magical, as opposed to a journey of real work that has all these different emotional cadences that isn't one kind of long rise from darkness to light where you emerge at some finish point and everything is done and then you just go on and live this completely different life. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about the emotionality of the journey for you and particularly where you felt you've had breakthroughs only to have moments where you've had either triggered memories or taken what you felt is a step back, but is another emotional moment in your healing journey? It is an ongoing journey. As I'm 47, my molestation happened when I was 10 to 12, and I was raped in college. And so my healing process is what I will be doing for the rest of my life. And so while I definitely make a lot of progress, I also have what I don't even know if I want to call them setbacks, because I think sometimes the setbacks enable us to propel forward. And that this notion that you're just going to, you know, take a pill or even see a therapist and you're going to be okay overnight is not true. And it's okay, because there's many studies that talk about that it takes years to recover when we are doing the conscious work from forms of sexual violence. And so for me, I think the key is patience, compassion, more patience, and just keep pushing forward and understanding that particularly with child sexual abuse, these are formative years, that this is when we are forming who we are and that when we are violated against our will by someone that we love and trust, that that just shapes everything. It is an ongoing process. And I think that it is really important that we acknowledge that because I think that when we don't acknowledge it, what happens is that people go, well, how come I'm not like this person? Or how come I'm not like that person? I want to be okay. And some days I, you know, when I was doing this forum, there were days when I said I was like barely able to get out of my bed. And that was because I was not only holding my own trauma, but the trauma of all of the courageous contributors who shared in terms of working with them and hearing and reliving their stories with them as they're sharing them. 
So this is an ongoing process. Healing is a journey. It is not a destination. Here's another excerpt from your piece. This is from the second piece, A Daughter's Postscript. And you write, and I quote, How do I heal from 37 years of intentional and inadvertent denial from two beloved people, my divorced parents, who did not walk their human rights defending talk when it came to addressing my child sexual molestation? Since late August 2016, this is the question that my mother and I are experientially learning minute by minute of every single day by day without attachments to the outcome. So listening to that, Aisha, where are you now in that mother-daughter journey? I continue to be filled with gratitude that my mother has pushed herself to come to the realization and understanding about the ways in which she, nor my father, but she can only speak for herself, protected me. And so I've actually had conversations with people who didn't know the full story, and they were like, my God, I'm so angry. How come you're not angry? And I spent a lot of time, I spent 37 years being angry. For me just to be seen in this way by my mother, for us to have this healing, I am grateful that we are both still alive in our right minds and able to do this work. We're here, and I'm grateful that we're doing the work with each other and our family unit, but then that she was willing and courageous to share and put this out there in her writing, that my hope is that this can serve as a resource for others to break the silence, because I'm not a parent, and I will never be a parent, but I can only imagine the amount of shame blame and guilt that one must have when they come to face-to-face with how they can protect their child. And so for my mother to put herself out there to really share her process, I'm hoping that it creates a space for other parents to do the same because this is what we survivors need. We need our families to be accountable and to seek forgiveness for their actions. And so for me, I am grateful. I am Aisha Shahida Simmons. And you're listening to Love with Accountability, a two-week special on The Spin. When it comes to childhood sexual abuse, we know that it is someone known, loved, trusted within family circles. For Aisha, it was pop-pop. For other girls and boys, it is a man, a woman, a mother figure, a father figure, a daddy. Daddy, don't touch me there. I'm gonna tell on you one day, I swear. Can't you see I'm scared you're supposed to be my father? Daddy, don't touch me there. I'm gonna tell on you one day, I swear. Can't you see I'm scared you're supposed to be my father? Every day I wonder why my daddy had to be the one to take away my innocence. Oh, sometimes I wanna die, it feels like no one cares for me, and it's evident that something must be wrong with me. I'm not as happy as I seem to be The long showers I take Don't wash away the memories Why do I have to face these tragedies? We go through struggles in life I'm aware but to have my daddy touch me That's just not fair Stop him from destroying my future Believe me, he's behaving like a creature Daddy, don't touch me there I'm gonna tell on you one day, I swear Can't you see I'm scared you're supposed to be my father? Ooh, daddy don't touch me there I'm gonna tell on you one day, I swear 
Can't you see I'm scared you're supposed to be my father To all your mothers out there, give a listening here Pay attention even if the man a pastor You have to make sure before you trust him with your daughter Plus him will even try to take your son as brother Watch it make we don't keep with some dirty water You can't hide no more now you have to meet your karma If you know say it's a go on and turn a blind eye Then your judgment a go pile up out a mile high Get suicidal if you think it a go save you Because me sure say you not go get fisty the savior Me just can't find a name for your behavior It's a lucky thing we got a nosy neighbor Daddy don't touch me there I'm gonna tell on you one day I swear Can't you see I'm scared you're supposed to be my father Daddy, don't touch me there. I'm gonna tell on you one day, I swear. Can't you see I'm scared you're supposed to be my father? When you feel like giving up, just shake it off and live it up. The most I will deliver you. Can't jump the rope if you not try. So wipe that tears there from your eye. Get the wings of confidence to make you fly. Tribulations are just to make you stronger. Love yourself and it will help you forget over. Any flesh hurt, a lick of youth will never prosper. I passing on the message from the master. Every day I wonder why my daddy had to be the one to take away my innocence. Oh, sometimes I wanna die. It feels like no one cares for me and it's evident. That something must be wrong with me. I'm not as happy as I seem to be. The long showers I take don't wash away the memories. Why do I have to face these tragedies? We go through struggles in life. I'm aware of to have my daddy touching me. That's just not fair. Stop him from destroying my future. Believe me, he's behaving like a creature. Daddy, don't touch me there. I'm gonna tell on you one day, I swear. Can't you see I'm scared you're supposed to be my father? Ooh, daddy, don't touch me there. I'm gonna tell on you one day, I swear. Can't you see I'm scared you're supposed to be my father? Listening to Aisha, it sounds as though healing can literally feel like gathering pieces of yourself to get back to yourself. I'm just gathering pieces. I'm just gathering pieces. I'm just gathering pieces together. I'm just holding myself. I'm just holding I'm living on stolen breath. 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 So that was part one of Love with Accountability, the first of a two-part special on healing and justice by survivors of childhood sexual violence. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women-of-color podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Aisha Shahida Simmons and Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons. And join me via NPR Washington, D.C. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. 
We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5 and in Lagos, Nigeria on WFM 91.7. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on SoundCloud or iTunes. Stolen breath, I'm living on 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 Time for part two of Love with Accountability on The Spin. A Mother's Lament. Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons is Aisha's mother. And in her piece for Love with Accountability called, as I said, A Mother's Lament, Dr. Simmons openly shares her response to Aisha's revelation of her step-grandfather's sexual abuse and the impact of her reaction on their mother-daughter relationship. Dr. Simmons did not believe Aisha initially. She told her her pop-up was a good man, that he would simply not do such a thing. In A Mother's Lament, Dr. Simmons writes why she chose to believe Pop-Pop and not her 10-year-old daughter. Here's Dr. Simmons with that excerpt that explains. My name is Gwendolyn Zohara Simmons, and I am the mother of my only child, daughter, Aisha Shahida Simmons, who was sexually molested by her step-grandfather from when she was 10 until she was 12 years old. When Aisha told me that her grandfather was sexually molesting her, I did not believe her. I told her that she was having a bad dream and that her beloved Pop-Pop would never do anything like that. He presented as an upstanding family man, hard worker, proud provider for his wife, Aisha's grandmother, who he loved dearly and tenderly cared for. My daughter's grandmother had a lingering illness and did not work outside the home. She doted on Aisha, her pie, as she called her. My daughter loved her grandmother dearly. I thought more than she loved me, and I was a bit jealous of their relationship at times. For my daughter to tell me that her grandfather was sneaking into her bedroom late at night and was touching and feeling her vagina and forcing her to kiss him in the basement were monstrous acts beyond my imagination. It could not possibly be true, I thought. I told her dad 
that Aisha's grandfather, his stepfather, was coming into her bedroom late at night and sexually molesting her. He, too, did not believe it, saying that there was no way his stepdad would do anything like this. I shared that I, too, had not believed it initially, but that Aisha was so insistent that it was not a dream, that she was not making it up, that I now believed it was true. Aisha's dad kept saying it would kill his mother to tell her that her husband was sexually molesting her granddaughter and that we had to keep it a secret from her at all costs. What is so outrageous about my and Aisha's dad's behavior was that we were equally, if not more concerned, it seems in retrospect, about his mother's well-being, my job, his job, our movement work, and our reliance on them for child care than we were about the tremendous harm being done to our daughter. How hard was it to write that, Dr. Simmons? It was difficult. Of course, the difficulty, the realization of the harm had come before the actual writing. And I was going through a process of coming to terms finally, 37 years later, of what Pop Pop had done. And of course, I had believed Aisha, as I noted, and had apologized to her for not doing anything at the time. But what I had not understood deeply was the silence that I not only participated in, the fact that I did nothing, the fact that we continued to be around this man and expect Aisha to be around him in all of these family gatherings. She continued to go there. And the fact that This had gone on for all these years. It was like my eyes were finally opened because, as one can imagine, over the years there have been difficulties between Aisha and myself, and I had kept wondering why can't this thing be healed between us. But, of course, I was just thinking of the two-year period and thinking, I've apologized, I was so wrong. But never had I come to grips with the long years beyond the molestation itself and the fact that we were often there, Christmas parties, Thanksgiving dinners, birthday parties, and all the family coming in from out of town, and there we were all together. And it never had dawned on me what was happening to Aisha, that we were acting as if this man was the person he was presenting himself as and had not done something monstrous to her. This is a recent coming to consciousness about this horrible thing that I did over many, many years to Aisha and beginning to understand why there was such a tension between us over these many years. Aisha, I wonder if you could speak to 
how you had to kind of what I call emotionally arrange yourself in order to continue to be in your step-grandfather's presence and to kind of continue a normalized life in profoundly traumatic circumstances where you were expected to continue to just in, in, engage as if the, the, the act of speaking, what had happened during those two years, was the end of the conversation. I wrote Removing the Mask. It's about my journey around taking off what I call, I wore a mask. I started wearing it as a, as a child. I developed migraine headaches at the time of my molestation. I still suffer from migraine headaches, not as much because I'm doing things around that place. They used to be debilitating headaches. And what I realized is that because I couldn't scream, my body started to scream. My body was reacting and responding in ways that my voice could not. It's all complex because I loved Pop-Pop. I loved him deeply and dearly. He definitely terrorized me for those 10 years. And then he also was the lifesaver who took care of his wife, my grandmother, my Nana Banana, as I used to call her, who had Alzheimer's for the last 10 years of her life. And because of my grandfather, she never spent one day in a nursing home. And she only spent the last three days of her life in the hospital. It's complicated. So while definitely I knew what happened, I also could see what was happening in terms of contemporarily. And so I did these emotional acrobats. It wasn't until 2010 when he became very, very ill and I played a pivotal role in saving his life. I mean, the doctors, the medical establishment saved his life, but I was the point person there because my father lived abroad and he wasn't there and his daughter lives in another state. And so I was the person in Philadelphia who was able to get him to the hospital and all of that and until my dad and my aunt were able to come to town. And it was then, 2010, and what happened to me was in 19, started in 79, that I was, it was like... Something just imploded inside of me when I was like, no more. So I don't know. Like, I think that I was slowly but surely chipping away at this. When I became an adult in terms of doing my work around Know the Rape documentary, which looks at adult rape, but I think that that was the first step. Like, I call this now, I'm digging up the roots of child sexual abuse. With adult rape, which is intense and horrifically powerful, that was like, I call it kind of cutting off the leaves, but child sexual abuse is like pulling up huge roots, tree roots. And I wasn't able to do that until six years ago. I wasn't able to start doing that. But prior to that, it was like emotional acrobat. I still, Esther, to this day go, how did I do it? And not completely insane. Like, because we understand PTSD. We, we would never ask someone who has been tortured in war to love and take care of their torturer. And that's exactly what we are asking survivors of child sexual abuse to do. And that's indeed what makes it so complicated. The space within which they live is an intimate relationship with that violence that is ongoing. Dr. Simmons, I wonder if you could read the next excerpt. I needed my daughter's grandparents' home to be safe so that I could travel and work without worrying about her well-being knowing that she was loved and protected by both grandparents, or so I thought. Talk about, when you think about that now, I think that the issues of guilt and what that feels like and that the paralyzing motion of that is what people think about. But talk about what that means for you at that time and now when you look back. 
at that time, certainly before the molestation or my being made aware of it by Aisha, I just thought that I had the best situation given the divorce, given the job that I had, the fact that I traveled internationally for the work. I just thought it was so wonderful that I had these grandparents who had such a comfortable home, who loved Aisha so, and I thought she was safe, you know. So, of course, when she told me about the molestation, as I stated earlier, I didn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. And I am now coming to grips with the reality that a big part of not wanting to come to grips with that reality had to do with my own life and the changes that were required for me to make if I were going to take her out of that situation. I don't think I consciously at all knew this. This is understanding and coming to terms with this all these years later. And so now I really am amazed. I'm shocked in addition to being ashamed of myself. The fact that I was blind to this is amazing to me, given, you know, my work, my own commitment to human rights, women's rights, being a feminist. I am in a state of shock at my own blindness, my own complicity that I really was not conscious of. And it is shaking me to my very foundation. I think sometimes we impose our political consciousness, our political progressiveness on our emotionality. And we imagine that because we are as politically progressive as we are, that our emotionality is progressive as well. And I do this work called Emotional Justice, where I talk about emotionality's power is its own story that can be completely separate from intellect if it stays unnurtured. Because just like an intellect needs to be fed and watered in order to develop, the same is true for our emotionality. And the fact that we've had years on the planet is not necessarily an indication of emotional progressiveness if it's not tended to and nurtured and grown up and healed and all the things that have to happen in order to move from one space of consciousness to another. So we create what I call kind of a diary of a cracked mirrors. We have these different ways of being seem to not make sense, but they're actually part of how we politically move through the world and then how we emotionally move through the world. In another part of A Mother's Lament, Dr. Simmons, you explain how you apologized to Aisha after she began to lash out. I wonder if you could read that excerpt. I apologized after she began to lash out at me for leaving her there all those years and for tacitly expecting her to function with her grandfather as if nothing had happened long after he stopped sexually molesting her. As far as Aisha knew, neither her dad nor I had done anything. On the surface, nothing had changed between us and him. As far as she knew, We had done nothing to end the nightmare, nor was he publicly or privately censured in any way for his crime by me. For these decades, I could not understand 
why Aisha could not just get over it. I was in denial about the great harm that had been done during and long after the actual molestations took place. How hard was it to apologize and feel that you had done the right thing by acknowledging what happened and that the apology did not necessarily change Aisha's behavior or your relationship? How challenging was it to kind of begin to confront the legacy of the untreated trauma that Aisha had lived with? Well, to be completely honest, when Aisha wrote the article she mentioned earlier, the essay, and where she talked about she was no longer going to wear the mask, and she had visited me and had said that to me, you know, a few years earlier after writing the piece, and I kept trying to understand what mask. And she will probably remember, I mean, it was a very difficult to put it mildly, conversation. And I kept saying, what mask? Because in my mind, you know, uh, she and I have been together on panels when she screened no, and I've talked about how I didn't believe her and all of that. But for some reason, this whole section of uh, years of us acting normal, that had somehow escaped me. And to be Absolutely honest, I have no idea how I had somehow not seen this. I'm still racking my brain trying to understand how did you go there? How did you have Christmas dinners year in and year out, Thanksgiving? Aisha staying there for Santa to come and bring the toys. I don't understand it. And so, really, I'm in a process of trying to understand how can someone with the political consciousness that I think I have, the feminist consciousness, how on earth did I not see what we were doing to her, what I was doing to her? Let me take full responsibility for my actions. And I'm ashamed, I'm in shock, and I am grateful that Aisha has not cut off relationships with me, even though that has happened from time to time, and that we are working to try to heal this. I, like Aisha, am thankful that I am still alive for this to happen. We have a close family members where something similar to this happened, and it was never healed. So I know how grateful I am that I have not passed on before Aisha and I can work on this great healing that we're engaged in. Aisha, talk about that conversation that your mother mentioned, which she said it was difficult to say the least, where you talked to her about this mask has just got to go. In terms of just the time period, I went down to visit her last November of 2015 and talked to her because the book has just been published this year, Queering Sexual Violence. And as recently as August, we had a meeting, she, my father and I, for another topic in their divorce. And again, my mom was like, what mask? We need to talk about this. Because she, she read the chapter. They each have a copy of the book. And it still was like this thing that she could not see, August. So this is an ongoing work. So it's been hard. And in fact, talking about, you know, not having attachments, which I consistently learning through my practice of Vipassana meditation, 
I really kind of, this August was almost like, you know what, I got to let this go. She can't see it. My dad's not dealing with it in the way in which I need for him to deal with it. I got to let it go. They're getting older. I'm going to continue to do my work. And let me see if I can try to find some kind of peaceful ground. And literally, in terms of with my mom, the moment that I really began to let it go emotionally, not just intellectually, was through a series of events that won't go into here. She realized she had the revelation. She saw it. She was like, oh, my God, I I understand now. And I didn't even expect it. So it caught me so off guard. And then it was just like we started having these powerful conversations. We don't live in the same city. So long phone conversations, crying, sharing, reflecting about so much. I started feeling a healing physically, like I really a healing, a wound that I just never thought would be healed started to heal. And then we just saw each other for the first time since these conversations this past November. And that was also powerful and beautiful. It was, for me, a first visit where there wasn't that backdrop anymore. One of the things you write, Dr. Simmons, is you talk about the great harm of Aisha's father and yourself acting normal around this man. You say, quote, We acted as if all was normal and I never understood the tremendous harm I was inflicting on my daughter, unquote. And you're now both describing beginning to understand the harm and exploring how you were not able to see that and how the revelation has begun a breakthrough that has allowed a different kind of conversation to take place. But Dr. Simmons, how would you define or explain the harm that you were inflicting on her now that you have more of a kind of a revelation around it? I don't know. It's almost as if you wake up from 37 years of sleepwalking. I'm still floored that it did not dawn on me what we were doing, that we were there so often and we were laughing and dancing and singing and eating and all of this. And it never dawned on me what was happening to Aisha. So as Aisha has just said, this happened in August of this year. So this is very fresh for me. And certainly writing my piece that appeared in Love with Accountability on the Feminist Wire was the first time that I tried to put in words what I was now understanding. And I know that Aisha has been through so much. I now understand the migraine. She would often have to go to bed for a couple of days in a dark room. and It's just, what can I say? It's so jolting to me to think about these 37 years and that at the same time, I'm, I'm just in awe of Aisha's strength, her ability to carry on in spite of this. And as she mentioned, she was the person who saved her pop-up's life when he was in his house and hadn't been seen for three days. And finally a neighbor called and she had the key and went in and he was close to death. And, you know, she was able to call the ambulance and get him to the hospital and stay there for a couple of days until someone else in the family could come. This is an amazing thing. And, of course, she was there helping him take care of her grandmother, staying in that house, sleeping in that room 
where her molestation had happened. I'm just now coming to grips with this, and it's very, it's very difficult. <laughs> <sighs> 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 Healing tears. Healing tears. Healing tears. Okay, Mom. <laughs> and I, I, I'm just, I, I, my, I would not be able. I have to again just say, because I know particularly within black communities in the West. We tend to shun against therapy, and if it were not for my therapist, Dr. Clara Whaley Perkins, if it were not for my practice of Vipassana meditation, I wouldn't be able to do what I've been able to do. I just have to just say that as we, you know, talk about healing and emotional justice, and I really think that that is so critical, and I am grateful, again, to you, Mom, for pushing yourself, including being on this program for us to talk about this. You know, we're raised on this diet of unconditional love. You know, that's what we're taught in all kinds of cultural spaces. And Aisha, you've now created this kind of radical, revolutionary term to love accountably, as opposed to love unconditionally. So let me start with you, Dr. Simmons. I wonder what does that mean to you now to love accountably, given where you are in this journey? I think that when we truly love, and I know that I have always felt that I loved Aisha, that, you know, she's the only child, but I did not love her accountably. And so now I'm attempting to do that by writing the essay, by being on this program, and by working, hopefully, if Aisha wants me to, in this great work she is doing, by publicly sharing my story of not being accountable, of somehow being blind to great harm being done. I wonder what you would say to another mother whose child is maybe coming to them to disclose the way Aisha disclosed, having gone through this journey for where you are now. What would you say to another mother about what it means to love their child accountably post a revelation? At the end of my piece, I do list a few things, and the first thing is that I, you must, as a parent, believe your child, her or him, and really look into the situation, and you have to confront the perpetrator. That is number one in my view, and of course, you have to remove your child from the molestation that is taking place, and really the a perpetrator within the family has to be exposed. I know that it would have been very difficult to have exposed Aisha's grandmother to what her husband had done, and so I'm not taking it lightly what that might have done, but 
somehow if we are to begin to end this scourge, this international scourge against girls and boys by family members who molest them, who rape them, etc. We have to expose the person. They cannot continue to live their lives normally and be seen as upstanding persons. And we have to admit when we've done wrong, as I have done, to our children and beg them for forgiveness. Closing word to you, Aisha, what does it mean to you to love accountably? For me, it means to take responsibility for the harm that one has caused. That That's ultimately what it means. It means taking responsibility to naming it. It's very important that it is named and that we take responsibility and that we seek forgiveness and understand that at that moment, people may not be able to forgive, but that you seek forgiveness because that is the thing to do, but you don't seek forgiveness with attachment. But it's important that we name what we have done, the harm that we've caused. Love with Accountability, a vision by a woman, a daughter, an incest survivor, Aisha Shahida Simmons, a journey, lessons, legacy, and loving accountably with her mother, Dr. Gwendolyn Zohara Simmons. Not magic, but work together, finding a way, wouldn't you know?
that's your hour. Thank you to Aisha Shahida Simmons and Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for doing this program and having us on. Thank you, Esther. This is truly a gift and an honor. Thank you. I want to hear myself. <laughs> Thank you to the Spin Production Team, Sound Editor David McKeever, Distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is the first of a two-part special, Love with Accountability, the vision of Aisha Shahida Simmons. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes or SoundCloud. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global, healing, and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Fruits of freedom, equality, invest your money properly People owe me your policy, intellectual property Stealing, stolen, commodity, souls, controlling, robbery Total lack of commodity, clones, copycats, bother me Mine on black, that's follow me Honestly, honesty, honesty, all these jokers economy Puppets with no autonomy, yup, it's food, you can I see you looking, but you better take it easy Tell your goons that they better take it easy Here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy Take it easy, you better take it easy too much ex mommy, take it easy. Good with the sex, you be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. You moving bricks, but you better take it easy. Here's a tip. You too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend DT. And that dog sniffing the bag ain't last seat. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.